from the top. Okay. Drop that. Yeah. Feel the funk, y'all. From Alpha to Omega, VHS to Beta, PlayStation to Sega, my skill is still greater. The sickest thing since BD, wicked like BG, with my life crooked like the left finger on ET. Please believe Welcome to Sins and Suffers Podcast. I am your host, Mario Stanley. All right, so today on the show, we have Cody Bradford. Cody and I were recently connected by Irene, Lady Lockoff. Guys, please make sure you check out her Instagram. If you don't know, you're missing out. But jumping back to Cody... He is currently a rock guide, and he is aspiring to become an IFMGA. If you don't know what that is, that's just like as high as you can get, your full baller status in the world of guiding. This is not Cody and I's first conversation, and the previous conversations were really amazing because it's hard to find people who are just so woke. Stealing this concept from Code Switch, amazing podcast. If you guys don't listen to it already, check it out. Now that your earbuds are salivating for the conversation, I have one thing I need to ask you guys before we hit play here. I need your help to grow this show. So on whatever platform you're listening to this on, make sure you like, follow, and leave a comment. I know it doesn't seem like a big thing, but it definitely helps this episode and this show grow. Enjoy. Cody, welcome to Sins and Suffers, buddy. How are you? Mario, thanks for having me. I'm uh, well, a little tired. Just got back from a, a big objective I've been working on, for, well, thinking about for quite a while. And uh, so it's a good tired. But, nice. but I'm here and I'm, I'm psyched. Nice. What did you go do? I uh, just got back from the Torment Forbidden Traverse, uh, uh, Ridgeline Traverse in the North Cascades of Washington. Oh, nice. Nice. So well, I'm excited to hear about this. Uh, so as always, we need to let everybody know who you are, and where you're from and you know what do you do? And so um, can you just tell everybody that and your relation to the outdoors? Yeah, yeah, for sure. My name is Cody Bradford. I'm an AMJ certified rock guide and I guide full time. This year I'm taking a time off because of COVID-19 and just feeling like that. I, I just wasn't didn't feel super responsible working. Uh, so as of right now, I'm, I'm just Cody Bradford, uh, on Instagram and, uh, my, I started, uh, climbing and also kayaking and backpacking and whatnot, um, in 2008, 2007, 2008. And before that I had never really done any outdoor pursuit other than going on a run or a bike ride on my little Walmart bike and didn't really know the difference between a knot and a so it was outdoors was really new to me. And I guess to be fair, even though it's been over a decade now, I, I guess as a whole, I'm fairly new to the outdoors in, in relative terms, but I care about it a lot. And it's something I've just dove into headfirst. Before this, I was a musician and was thinking that was going to be full time. And, and so as uh, being in the outdoors now means uh, my life. And so I've made it my life and made it my profession and made it my career. Um, and that's, that's, that's been kind of quite the change now that I really think about how short of time frame that's been. Yeah, dude, that's massive. I mean, 2008 to being a full AMGA guide and guiding people climbing and 
Uh, you know, and, and for anybody who doesn't know you, you have a fairly large following on Instagram. Your social media does really well. You are known for uh, definitely being in my toolkit of like Instagram save folders of just like quick tips on all the things that we know how to do or anybody who's ever taken like an AMGA course or a test, like every one of those things that you see and you always wish you're like, man, I wish there was like a little video from it. It guaranteed you have made it, I think. I, well, I mean, I, I, I appreciate hearing that and thank you. Um, I also, I, I really, I just never expected what came about it. Also, there are times when I just feel guilty because I feel like the relative time I put into it. I mean, I do it now because I want people to have free information. I just, I know that it's not cheap to hire a guide. I want to figure out how this, it's a whole different story, how the system in the U S operates and how it kind of keeps us from having that kind of freedom. But yeah, yeah. this is just my way to do that. And and it, that's kind of what it's become, but it's, it's also really, I feel with, especially with channels like yours that are quite professionally done and uh, someone like you, who's also been in the, in this, game for quite a while um a great coach a great mentor and has a channel that actually has professional editing on it for example um and you're quite good at speaking as well uh, i just find it amazingly surprising uh that and, and i'm humbled by it that that i have the following i have but at the same time i i also hope folks know that there's other people on instagram too yeah <laughs> and, yeah, yeah and uh maybe it's because i'm trying to take some responsibility off of myself i don't know sometimes i i i, I do feel like that sense of responsibility and and given the time of day i give my instagram account it's it's interesting um but yeah i, I appreciate that man thanks it's it is at the same time that i say all that it is also uh, it's, it's kind of fun um having that community of people yeah man i think it's definitely awesome i would definitely have to agree that like uh when you once you start putting content out there and you start interacting people in the beginning when you're doing it you're just kind of like meh and I definitely think it's can, can kind of seem like, you know, why are you doing this? But at the same time, I think your passion to provide free quality content to people is key. And honestly, and when I say quality, a lot of people I want to take away from, you know, like there's production level and I appreciate the compliments on my production. I put a lot of work into it. Uh, but I think yeah, there's also yeah, there, there's also a point of like production level and like just getting it done and getting the information out quickly and efficiently to people. And I think that's a, a lot sure. of times that like someone like myself, who's a perfectionist, sometimes I kind of wrap over the details and a buddy of mine named Devin and I were talking about like, you know, we just need to get, we just need to get shit done. And he said the same thing about his music and my, and it's kind of, I remember a phrase my dad always told me, he was like, you can be, you can be perfect or you can be done. One makes more money than the other. And I just have to tell myself that a lot all the time. But I do think it's really pretty inspiring for someone to know that like they can get to your level of guiding in 10 years, you know, assuming that they have all the resources, access to everything that they need, like it is obtainable to do this as a career. And so can you kind of explain, I guess, like where you are in the AMGA guiding uh, uh, certification process, where you're trying to go to? Uh, and I think this would be something really relevant for our listeners. Like what is the life what is the POV, the point of view from a guide and a day of just working with a client on a large mountain? Because you do more alpine, if I'm correct. You don't do a lot of single pitch in a day. Uh, yeah, well, to, to the last point, I'm, I'm a rock guide. Um, and so that means I spend most of my time on rock. And sure, certainly, especially here in Washington, since I've been here since about March, a lot of that has been focused in the alpine. And then that gets to where um, I am in the process. but um in terms of 
time spent, I would say like 99% uh, or well, at this point, 90% uh, of my guiding is on rock terrain that wouldn't necessarily be considered alpine if you're literally defining alpine as like above tree line. Um, red rock, although alpine in nature at times, is definitely like a pure rock environment. And with that, yeah. comes fewer risk from, you know, yeah, like having snow on a route, right? Yeah, I call like that given place. Route, I just, oh, I call yeah. that place alpine cragging. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so that's, that's, I think that's a lot of times how it feels when you're up on some of those walls, especially if you want to access like the Eagle Wall and you could theoretically crag all of the single, the first pitches of all of those great routes right? You're technically, I guess that's like Alpine. It, it's, it's so funny how it's defined. And I think it's kind of silly personally, but, um, but yeah, so that's, so that kind of goes to where I'm in the process. Uh, and in, so what I'm going for is full recognition as from the international federation of mountain guide association. So IFMGA, um, the IFMGA recognizes, uh, I believe now it's either 17, it could be as many as 19 now different countries. Uh, they're based in Switzerland, and they recognize those individual countries as upholding as as having a guide organization that upholds the standards. So here in the United States, it's the American Mountain Guides Association, and they are upholding the standard from the UIAA, which I cannot pronounce the French uh, translation of that, but essentially it would literally translate to the International Mountaineering Federation. And so they're upholding that standard. The AMGA does that. All the countries do it differently. And so in the United States, because we just have this enormous swath of landscape, we've split it up into three realms, uh, the rock program. And this is for a guide track, by the way, the instructor track is a, a little bit different, but um, generally speaking, it's rock, alpine and ski. And to get your IFMGA uh, certification where you're allowed to go to, for example, Europe, where all you need is that IFMGA pin and you're just not total carte blanche, but essentially given access to the mountainous regions over there where guiding is legal. Um, to get that, you have to pass all three of those programs uh, in the guide track. So the guide track has three course, uh, two courses and an exam for each um, level as it relates to that concentration. So for example, in rock, it's the rock guide course, the advanced rock guide course, the rock guide exam. The Alpine Guide course, the Advanced Alpine Guide course, the Alpine Guide exam, Ski Guide course, the, yeah, and so on. Okay. In the Alpine and Ski programs, there are some different qualifications there that are outside of the AMJ. You have to have a Avalanche uh, certification, uh, four different levels of Avalanche certification or, or training, I should say, and uh, you also have to upkeep no matter what your level. A Wilderness First Responder. Um, I know that eventually it'll probably be a Leave No Trace educator. Um, certification at some point and um, upkeep uh, your general knowledge of of all of those things um, and make sure all of those things remain current so that a uh, long way to circle around that's that's uh, i'm in the track i just com i completed in 2018 spring of 2018 the rock program and so now i'm moving into the alpine program which uh, has been difficult to get into um, because um, to keep things cheaper because this education isn't cheap. And that's where I want to go into what you had initially first asked. Uh, I was going to go take it through a, a, a sponsored course through a company who is accredited by the AMGA so that it would be cheaper. That keeps getting canceled every year though. So I, this is the second year in a row it was canceled. Oh, wow. And because I, yeah. And because I didn't work, 
there this summer, which is, I, I think I can, it's fair. It, it hurts a little bit, but it's fair. Uh, I was not allowed on it when they rescheduled it, which is frustrating, but I, I get it. I wasn't there. So I'm not necessarily, I wasn't necessarily a value to that company this summer in the Alpine. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> that's the hard truth. Yeah, totally. Whole different story. Um, and then I get, and if, if you'd like, yeah, to that first part of your question, um, how how does one did i arrive here 10 years um so i i think the the first thing i could say is that first of all it's just it's a privilege to have been able to even be introduced to the idea of going climbing as a, a, a as this pursuit that you can just forget about your life and do um it's a it's a bit of a long story I, I, and so I, I won't totally get into it of how i just ended up in that position in the first place but essentially a big life event just meant leaving my whole family behind, leaving, honestly, friends I'd had for years behind. And uh, this life-changing event just brought me to, I dropped out of high school. And uh, as a consequence of that, wasn't able to get into a university. So I did two years of community college, which eventually just led me to Boone, North Carolina, going to a community college there. And it kind of gave me a second chance where I was able to get into Appalachian State and transfer into it. And Appalachian State has a great outdoor program. And that outdoor program felt welcoming and felt like home. And I was looking for community. And I was working on a farm at the time because I don't know why I just wanted to work on a farm and be outside. And that eventually led me to meeting all these people that worked in this industry. And because I, I, I didn't know anything about it, much less that it had a, an industry. And uh, I just I fell in love with it. And because I didn't have any ties to anything, I was pretty much able to just uh, live cheaply. And I got, and also because I'm, I'm adopted, I was able to get a grant to pay for half my schooling. And then working on the flower farm was paying for the rest of it. And I was able to uh, live cheaply and figure out and pay for school and go pursue climbing and kayaking and, um, and backpacking. And through all of that, I left college and then realized like, oh, I'm not getting grants anymore. So I guess it's time to go move into my car. So I was working for Outward Bound to provide housing in the summer. Yeah, exactly. Right. Says every climber. Uh, says every climber. Yeah. Says every climber. And because I was estranged from my family too, I didn't really have anything to fall back on, but I didn't mind living out of my car because the thing about the climbing community is that they make it very okay to live out of your vehicle. And I didn't feel guilty about that. And um, yeah, as a person who felt welcomed in that environment, I was able to pretty comfortably live. I mean, I wouldn't say it was comfortable living in the back of a Nissan Xterra isn't exactly, you know, the most comfortable thing ever uh, for like most of the year. But it allowed me to just go live on the road on like $8,000 a year of income. And that helped me get climbing experience. It also simultaneously helped me save for the AMGA programs, which are not cheap. Although there are scholarships, and I will say those scholarships are getting a lot better for marginalized communities, which is, I'm, I'm appreciative of the AMJ for making that effort. Um, uh, I haven't received a scholarship myself yet, but um, I've been able to do it so far. And so that's a really long-winded way of, of saying that that brings all of those points you would ask together is, is that essentially I lived out of my car. Um, I didn't have the kind of binding nature of family and friends that I necessarily had an obligation or felt the need to be around all the time, which gave me the freedom to live on my own. Now, the trade-off of that, of course, being is that 
I also kind of didn't have a community and that, that was hard. Uh, not just not really having close friends that I always saw all the time and yeah, constantly moving destination to destination. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's one thing to have like friends at the crag that you run into. And I think all of us have those like certain circle of friends, like, but I think within the climbing community, you have like your crag circle of friends, like someone that you project the same route on or someone that you run into the same crag. Uh, you just run into these people all the time when you're traveling, but you know, and it is like an extended welcoming community, but like at the same time, if you're like, you can't build roots that way. You just don't build roots that way. And some people are okay with that. Some people operate in that space and, you know, God bless them. But at the same time, it is hard. It is. It definitely d does put a toll on you when you're on the road for a long time. Cause the relationships that you do have, I feel like you tend to lean on them a little heavy sometimes even. Yeah. Agreed. And you don't necessarily know. It's like the classic, you don't know what you got until it's gone kind of thing. Um, and it's, it's funny because I consider myself a person who don't need many people in my life, but I still do need someone in my life. And that's, I'm thankful to have a really supportive partner uh, now who also just loves traveling. And I mean, we're still in it. We still live out of the van full time uh, for this year has been paying rent a little bit and then couch surfing. And then eventually taking care of people's houses apparently is what we do now when they're not around for COVID. So <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's nice to have that one person because I think if you were doing this uh, like mostly alone without that support network, at least semi-constantly around, I think it is another barrier um, uh, to, to doing this. I'm, I'm amazed at people who can get through the, the whole AMJ process uh, so quickly. And that, that's a whole, that goes into a whole nother thing too, because again, yeah. growing up on the East Coast, or I don't know, not again, but uh, growing up on the East Coast, I didn't have alpine terrain. So I only had rock, which was great. I got to learn how to rock climb pretty well. And be okay with it but i didn't i mean now uh i get to alpine climb way more and i see all of the things i missed and to be a guide it really does show most of the people i know grew up in the mountains and yeah. it is hard looking up this ladder that i feel that i'm gonna have such a hard time attaining the rest of it because i mean all the ski guy not all the ski guides but all, most ski guides i know grew up skiing and i certainly didn't have money to go skiing. <laughs> I was yeah. not going skiing as a kid anywhere. And it's much less on the East coast. Yeah. Um, no, that's a very true and statement. So, yeah. Yeah. And so I guess that's where I'm like, it's awesome to, to be a guide. Um, and you know, in our country, this is, again, like I was saying earlier, it's a whole different conversation, but they don't see the certification in any legal way. So it's really just self-policing. Uh, it's cool though, to be able to attain the rock guide cert at least and not necessarily have to complete your full IFMGA process like you do in certain countries, because it, it does allow you to go out and pursue. I mean, there's a lot of cool rock environment around here, and rock is generally the most attainable thing for people. And while it might not make you the most income of all the disciplines, it certainly is. It's just fun. Sunny, warm rock climbing is, is just awesome. And um, But it is a, it, I do stop to think that, oh, wow, now I'm at the part of the process that takes a lot of money time and it's just kind of flat out dangerous when you haven't grown up in it and you're learning in the raw so uh, it, it, i will yeah. say that that's uh, yeah and this this torment for ben traverse i just got off of um, kind of reminded me of that 
Dude, dude, that's actually a very profound statement, like learning in the raw. I like that because, I mean, that's really kind of how it is. And most of us, when you're just doing single pitch or you're just traveling on rock, I mean, there's a lot of things. I think your margin for error is a lot higher. Like you can get away with quite a bit, but once you're in an Alpine setting, and I know the few times that I have been in the Alpine setting, I've definitely been like, okay, like my margin for error is absolutely none. My ego is absolutely gone. Like there's like, there, this is, this, this can't exist and operating up here. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't truly understand. You know, everyone thinks about like, oh, I'm not going to get altitude sickness. So I'm going to take some pill. But other than that, but like, there's a lot more to it. I mean, it's all encompassing. Like you're really, you're immersing yourself in an environment where you really don't belong and you're trying to make the best of it and you're trying to really enjoy it. But like, you know, we were not meant to be in that, uh, in that kind of environment for extended periods of time, in my opinion. No, exactly. Yeah. And, and you feel that. And then to not having not never had someone kind of holding my hand at first and saying, Oh, you see that over there? Like that, that's a, that's a Bergstrand. And, and, you know, in late season that, that Bergstrand gets bigger and it actually gets overhanging. And, you know, those, those collapse when people try to cross them and they don't realize they're standing on a, a 50 foot cliff basically held up by snow and, and, and just, and having to just pick up on the use of that instead of having having had someone hold my hand is it's funny because I'm really now I'm during the rock program it was pretty easy to feel that it was so accessible and now I I'm starting to really get that sense of wow even to someone like me who who has been in this process now for a little bit and has done a lot of the research and has committed so much of their time all of a sudden now I'm definitely feeling that sting of of growing up not in a mountain culture and not having any of those access things, which then, yeah, just makes you realize, wow, this is what a, what a, what, what a hard barrier to cross. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, dude, it's real. Yeah. I mean, I think just dude, people just don't understand how real rock climbing can get. And especially yeah. when you're going for it as a profession, you know, I mean, I forget what the actual number was, but I had looked up like getting your IFMGA is equivalent to like paying for your master's degree in whatever other profession that you're doing, you know, and maybe it's not as like, maybe it's not apples to apples, but when you look at like cost of course, cost of lodging, cost of lost wages, because some of these courses are two weeks long. I mean, you're literally in the back country or you're gone in classroom for two weeks and it's a big deal. And especially in the beginning, as you said, you know, like rock guiding is not, maybe not the most lucrative income, like even single pitch guiding is maybe not the most lucrative one. And you don't really start making a ton of money until you start getting up in that IFMGA, but it's a long process to get there. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think people don't necessarily, especially guides, it's, it's becoming less taboo, which I'm appreciative of, um, and online forums for professional guides. It's, it's, People are starting to talk about a lot of these issues more, but income uh, for guides after you've paid for that quote unquote masters of guiding, uh, masters of the mountain, so to speak. I mean, most people uh, don't really make it as their only job. And I think that's no. something that uh, we don't, yeah, we don't talk about enough. Uh, it, and, 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 and I think that, I mean, to an extent, you know, I mean, guiding started generally, at least in relative terms, poor Germans and Swiss mountain climbers taking these rich Brits who wanted to um, climb these tall peaks. I mean, a lot of first descents were done as a guided party from a, a like a, a a a German guide, um, you know, who lives in tent, who lives in a tent most of his life, 
taking a British aristocrat up some big peak. And to an extent, not a lot of that has changed. I think our <sighs> desires have changed in that, you know, now having a home, like owning a home, for example, which I, who knows, I mean, maybe I'd own a home one day. I, I'd like to think that, but I'm certainly not going to do it on my income, right? It's, to yeah. an extent, it is like one of the things we're doing it still because we love it. And that hasn't really changed. I just finished having this conversation with my mother and we had talked about, you know, guiding and all this other stuff. And she's like, you know, you're getting older. You need to start thinking about your retirement. You need to start thinking about these things, you know, and she's like, your guiding company, like really, what is that going to do? You know, and I had to really think about it. And I've always known this, but I even say this to people all the time. I want you to become a guide. Like if you want to become a guide, you want to start a business, you want to be a guide here, Texas, Dallas, Colorado, wherever, go for it and start it and do it. But no, like if you're trying to make a living doing this, it's not a thing. Like no one gets into like anyone who knows anything about the rock guiding business knows like if you're trying to get into this and make a full time living, you either are starting with a massive amount of capital up front or that's just not your game. Your game is like you're doing it for the love of the game. And I think that's what most people who truly guide do it for. They are doing it for a season, are doing it for the love of the game. And that's really what matters the most. I just wanted to sing your praises for becoming an owner. Uh, I mean, High Point Expeditions is like, uh, I mean, to, to, to really to, to make it, I mean, a lot of guides who are still in it, I mean, they've started their own business, right? I mean, that's, that ends up being what happens. But, but I think that there are, also, just like there are barriers to guiding, there are barriers to starting your own business even. And I mean, you I, that I know nothing about. And so, again, this is why I was singing your praises earlier of the organization of your account and, and, and the professionalism of your, of your video editing. That foresight is something I don't necessarily possess. I'm just very unplanned and, and just go off into it because I can be um, to, to at least a small degree. Um, hopefully, my partner continues to support that. <laughs> um, and, and, and I do, and so I just, I do love it. And so what that allows me to do is focus on it entirely. But if I really want to make this sustainable, that's why I, I look to people like you in, in terms of mentorship, because being able to make this work sustainably, I mean, it's clear that you love it and you have taken those steps. I mean, being a business owner is still one of those things that I just see as this, uh, like almost like, oh, now you've made it. I mean, I, I'm, I it's obviously that's, that's extremely oversimplified, but, but it is one of those steps that you've taken. To... I get your point. And I've definitely had people say that before. And I think anyone who is a, a business owner really knows it's like, you just don't mind having your own ass kicked all the time. And usually you are the one kicking your own ass. So it's just kind of like, it's kind of how it goes. But yeah, man, there was totally. a huge amount of learning curves and I'd, I'd love to say I learned a lot of it on my own and like that, but I definitely, I learned a fair amount and I learned a fair amount of my mistakes on my own. I think the biggest thing that's helped me in this process from going from like, you know, with a buddy and like, we want to start a guiding company so we can go rock climb more to understanding like, this is no longer a guiding company that, so me and my bros can go rock climb. I need to decide now, do I want to provide a service to the community and I, I want to provide quality education and do I want people to leave the state of Texas and I want people to brag about how everybody from Texas knows their shit. And that's what I, I thought, that's my ultimate goal. Like, or you receive any of my training from me or my guys and girls, then um, my, my whole thing is, is like, I just want people to look at you while you're climbing and just be like, damn, that fool's shit is on lock. And they don't have to worry about you. And like, that's like a point of pride of me, you know, and I don't ever get to see that moment, yeah. uh, but I don't need to see that moment. What I need is for, you know, the people who come through me to at least experience that moment. And I think that's like, that was like the biggest turning point for me 
in starting my guiding company, realizing like, this isn't two dudes who want to rock climb anymore. This has transitioned into, I have a service. I have something I have to do. Actually, you know, now that I think about this, stepping back, it wasn't even so much something I needed to do. There was a need in the community and the people that I saw really fulfilling the need were doing it, but they were also doing it. It's one thing to do it self-servingly, but in a very humble way and you're self-serving yourself, but you're still providing a great service. It's another thing to do it self-servingly and then continue to operate everything like you're running your own boys and girls club. And it's just like whoever you decide to get into it. And that, that shit just irritates me. It irritates the living light out of me. And I just was not okay with it. And, you know, I just, I want more people to be able to rock climb. I think there's more than enough rock to go out there around the world. And I think it's, you know, our responsibility as climbers to at least, you know, be the people in the climbing community that we wish we would have saw and try to make the climate people in the climbing community that we wish we would have had. And I think that's like my whole thing of doing it, but you know, getting back to the point of starting a business. Yeah, man. Like I, I, there was some people who definitely helped me out. And I think the biggest thing that I had is I had a lot more people willing to tell me things that were wrong than so much what I was doing right. And I think that's the most important, important thing, hands down. Like you have to have someone who's willing to call you out, even that you're excited on and you love, you love, and you're like, I really want to do this. But like, this is just not the thing for you to do if you are trying to run a business because, you know, it's, it sucks. Like you don't get to send every route, but sometimes you just got to like clip the chains on the things that you don't want to really want to do because the other thing is not within your ballpark right now as a business owner. And so that was like the most humbling and hardest thing that I had to learn. All right, guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about a company that has supported me since day one, Beyond Clothing. They make clothing and systems designed for anywhere in the world. And I do mean anywhere in this beautiful globe that we live in. Their clothing is designed for men and women. And I encourage you to go to Beyond Clothing and check them out. Use the promo code ALWAYSREADY. Save yourself a little bit of coin. And the rest of the proceeds definitely go out to helping this podcast. But I cannot tell you what makes their clothing so good. You have real people supporting you. Small business giving you an impeccable big business product. So take a moment to go to Beyond Clothing. They'll get you beyond any endeavor. All right, that's enough for advertisements. Let's get back to the episode with Cody. Right, yeah. And that's such an interesting point that you just uh, made about people, you know, calling you out from mistakes, because I was just going to ask you, do you prefer getting called out? Uh, like you're making a mistake uh, and, and whatever it may be, let's, let's assume it's, cli- it's climbing related. And do you prefer people tell you about it or do you, do you, I mean, maybe no one likes this, but do you, or would you rather make the mistake? And then obviously if it's not dangerous uh, and then get feedback later, like almost kind of allow being allowed to make like, for example, if I was doing something with my rope that could easily be fixed by this one thing that I just don't know. And they just kind of stand by and let me Epic for a second. Is that, but in a business, you can't really necessarily do that because if someone just lets you make a mistake, I mean, that actually, but, but it, it's so, that's so interesting because in climbing, it could be dangerous, right? And so oh, and yeah. owning a business, it could be dangerous. Yeah. So that's interesting. Do you, yeah, do you yeah. Think that it's funny. So you're kind of going into, dangerous. you know, instructor mode, like trying to teach someone. And, <laughs> and when I'm, you know, when I'm teaching a course, like a two day or three day course, like 
yeah, no, I definitely let people make the mistakes. As long as I know they're not going to get injured, I'll let them make that mistake and let them kind of like go through the process. And then, you know, if it's not really going to hurt anything, my big thing is, is like if it's super slow, I want to help make you efficient because I don't think people always correlate like time equals energy, energy equals time. And both of those two need to be in, in, in perfect sync in order for efficiency to occur. And I think just, you know, and I'm sure you've done this before, you've had this issue before. People just don't realize how long, how fast the day can go by. Like they're just unaware of how fast the day can go by. And I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. 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 And I, and then, but you're right in a business sense, it's kind of like, I don't have the financial wherewithal or, you know, the cushion or, you know, the legal expertise or the banking or the accounting or the tax receipts, whatever, to make these mistakes. And so having someone just on the other side of that, just being like, mm, you should reconsider your choices right now. You know, <laughs> sure. it, it, it's, it's meaningful. I mean, it, I will say this though, man, you're, you, you've got to get real comfortable with your ego taking some punches. So that's the downfall. Yeah, real comfortable. And rock climbing is an ego-based oh, sport, yeah. and I think that's really why it's hard for a lot of people to even accept feedback within their rock climbing. Absolutely. Do you, uh, you know, this is, and this is interesting too, do you think it's more dangerous to accept advice from some, uh, or I'm sorry, do you think it takes more trust to accept advice from someone on something that is, that, that does relate directly to your safety while you're rock climbing? Or do you think it's scarier to take advice from someone, you know, uh, giving you direct advice on something that could be really important for your business. Cause one involves your life, Ooh. but the other one involves your life as well, but in a totally different way. Oh man, that's hard. Uh, if I it's would so have to weird. say, yeah, dude, that's a deep question. Wow. Um, I would have to honestly say it's more scary for my business because there are more people I'm responsible for. If I'm just responsible for myself and, you know, and I, you know, stupidly take myself on anchor. And then, you know, there I go, you know, well, I mean, that that's my day. God was calling me home. You know, if I was dumb enough to do that or take bad advice or do whatever. Um, but when it comes, I, I'm not as scared and, you know, to have that conversation or have that debate, but I do get more nervous and a sense of anxiety having that conversation about my business because I am responsible for people and I, they're not, you know, and once again, going back to guiding, no one is guiding with me for their livelihood or their income. Like they're full. They're doing it because they love it. However, you know, the, they, these people have real jobs and I am asking to take off work of their real job to do something that they probably don't make as much money doing in their real job. And, you know, right. I, I just feel obligated to these people. And so I think it's it, it for me. The business side of everything is more nerve wracking and I probably lose more sleep over that. Uh, because of what I, because I don't know what I don't know, or I don't know what I do know sometimes. And it's kind of this like process of just going through this whole thing. Um, and yeah, that side is where I lose more sleep on the guiding, the actual, if you're just giving me and you and I are on the wall or someone giving me that, ah, uh, you know, I'm not too stressed on it, uh, stressed out about it, but the business side is what scares me. Such an interest. Yeah. That's, it's, it's also really beautiful to me that the very first thing that and the reason it makes you nervous at least the first reason you gave was because with your business it like other people are relying on you and that actually made me feel kind of terrible because as you were talking about it i uh, my also also is like the thing that makes me the most nervous is people giving me feedback about what i should do business wise mm -hmm. right because 
and I don't know if this is a uniquely American thing. Um, but one, it, it, I instantly just started thinking, well, also, cause I don't have any employees and I don't actually own a business per se. Um, not even per se, I just flat out don't own a business. And, uh, I just immediately thought about myself, but still, even though I don't own, have any employees, I still just thought about myself and I didn't think about the impact on a community. And it's kind of interesting to me that, that, yeah, you, you went straight to thinking about community. Um, anyway, but that's an, as an aside, I just well, you think know, it, I've I mean, been thinking about risk. A lot. Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I, I really want to hear what you said. You and I are like, I think the problem is, is our brains run on the same wavelength and we're like jumping in back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Cause like, yeah, we're definitely vibing on the same wave in the universe here, but I want to hear what you have to say, but I do have something to add to that. I uh, think it's very interesting that if maybe it's a very uniquely American thing that, and I've been thinking about risk a lot and how we think about risk, how the human brain thinks about risk versus and how society thinks about risk. And it's very interesting that I bet most people would say, at least here in the United States, that if you were to ask them that same question, rock, something that has to do directly with your safety and rock climbing, you would trust that person. You would be more willing to trust that versus you might lend more scrutiny towards someone that has to do with like your, your, your livelihood. Um, and because we don't, have this is getting a little political i guess but like we, yeah, we just don't have it. a fallback. It, it's my show we yeah, can say we, whatever we don't we have want. a fallback totally we don't have a fallback plan here you know no, like no. if you fall on your face you might not have bootstraps to pull yourself up by anymore after that but uh you're gonna have to do it because you're that's it i mean that that could be curtains for your livelihood then i mean and then what happens um and so when it comes to climbing which could kill you um, climbing is dangerous and we lose people badly in the mountains every year from doing things that are not even their fault at all. Um, it that could literally happen to anyone. And yet we are more willing to trust advice on that. I'm not saying that we just shouldn't. Um, but I also don't think carte blanche, we should run into it, but I just think that's a very interesting concept. And I wonder if it's uniquely American or if that's just Western or if it's just people, if it's just human, I don't, I don't know. That's interesting. I would probably say more Western and a little bit American because Americans are, I mean, sure. we're, we're notoriously known as arrogant people. You know, I mean, I'm not saying other cultures <laughs> yeah. aren't at all, you know, let's just, you know, sure. like we, we can all sit down at it. We can all sit down at a table with our preferred alcoholic beverage and see how arrogant everybody is. But the issue is, is <laughs> like, I think in Americans, it's like, we're just used to this, as you said, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can make it rags to riches, all this stuff. And I don't know. I just don't think Americans in general, and this is changing, mind you, this is changing drastically, but I don't think Americans in general have always been very um, forthcoming to the idea that, you know, we could be wrong or we could be criticized or anything like that. It's like, no, we're, Amer this is America. You don't get to tell America what America is doing wrong. And it's like, well, you know, if we're going to look at the political climate and everything that's going on right now, yeah, we definitely did some things wrong. Well, I mean, I say we, and we all know who I'm talking about, but moving on, you know, uh, the point is, is like, I do think that is a very like American thing to be kind of like guarded or uh, is it American or is it really, really masculinity? You know, and then that's where I have to ask myself, because is it because climbing and guiding is America is a male dominated sport. Most business in America is still male dominated, you know. So is it an American thing or is it a masculinity thing? And I think it's I think this is a very complex issue and unpacking it. But I'm going to boil it down simply to this is we as a culture have been taught that no one gets to tell us what to do unless we have accepted that person 
give that person permission in our lives, which is the more mature and adult thing to do. But what we do is unless this person makes X amount of more, if this person makes way more money than me, they're way more successful, I'm immediately take everything that they were, uh, they say face value on. I might be going off topic a little bit here before, but I think that's like how we're wired. And it also shows like really how insecurity, anxiety, all these things can kind of like weed into this thing. And I think you and I, in our conversations that we've had, I think the biggest thing that we've learned is like really just having this dialect and really just like talking to someone. And allowing people to like speak, whether painful, joyful, sad, whatever words into your life and just take them at base value and really try to process them at base value, I think is hard for Americans and people in general. I do think that is changing with the rise of the current generations because they're more apt to talk about their feelings. And I think after this COVID-19 thing, I think kids in general, the adults that are going to be our age soon. I think they're going to be much more open to talking about their feelings, anxiety, what's going on in their head, because, you know, everybody in this country was forcibly under house arrest, not forcibly. I take that back. No, there's no forcing at all because a bunch of people did not listen. But, um, but you know, if you, for your safety, you needed to stay inside for 60 to 90 days. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate the upcoming generations for everything just because I, I do believe that every success successive generation will be better than the last. So absolutely. Um, I really, yeah, I'm trying hard not to subscribe to the juvenoia as I get older, um, where you're just so paranoid about the next generation. It's like, no, they're, I might not. Yeah, sure. Because I didn't, I'm not growing up in the climate they're growing up in. Of course I don't do or like the things that every, you know, the collective seems to be doing, but it's not fair to say that they're not a, yeah. Yeah. I hope I hope you're right. I I do hope that the every successive generation, especially this one coming up now, um, yeah, it's just is able to d- dive into those a bit more um, and not hide the fact that turns out we all have emotion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think yeah. that, you know, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head here. And I think the big thing is, is embracing yourself and always surround yourself with people younger than you, like substantially younger than you. That's why I like coaching so much, man. I. I have learned more about myself and a human as a human being and my own emotions and how I operate and how I do things by just by working out with kids because they have no filter. They, their, their face calls you out on their bullshit. They, I mean, I love it. And it, it's honestly the only thing that kids have no reason to play a game and be self and super reserved with you unless their parents tell them that's how they need to be. But other than that, once you kind of build a relationship with kids, and from a, especially from a coaching perspective, and you're like, hey, man, you can talk to me like anybody else you want to, and they finally feel comfortable doing it, the things that like go on and it's like you think you think no matter what, when you're in high school and you're growing up, you're like, oh, this is it. You've learned. But the more and more you hear younger generations talk about current problems, I think the big thing is, is you realize how complex all these things are, but you're very hopeful. For every, I am very hopeful after every conversation I have. And I don't know, man, like kids, kids rock my world. And that's why I like doing my job. And I have no intentions to stop coaching because, you know, they're awesome. And, uh, they make I was gonna say, a shameless plug for your, for your, for, I, I would give you a shameless plug for your, for your, uh, coaching. Cause like if, if yeah, guaranteed, if there are any children ever enter my life, like I would love for you to be their coach. Cause I, oh, yeah, yeah, I just think that that would be great mentorship. So oh, dude, I'm, I'm super excited. I'm super excited. It's Actually, so funny. Come, go ahead. It's so, well, yeah, it's just so funny to me that 
I, I, at least I, I know I grew up, but it was always a little looked down upon, even by your own peer group, to be hanging around younger people. It was always just seen as like, why? Like, oh, you know, they're just they're just immature and they spend all their time around, um, you know, younger people. And and maybe I don't know, maybe in middle school and high school when you're really developing and there's such yeah, a big you're cognitive to be cool. difference in like a couple years. Yeah, and it, it's just so funny, but we keep doing that into like as you get older, um, it 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 is one of those things where like, oh wow, all my friends are you know in their early twenties and I'm or in their mid twenties maybe and I'm thirty two. I mean, it's like, well, well that's okay, <laughs> uh, like. That's totally okay if they're like 19, 20 years old. I mean, you can be friends with a 19 or 20 year old as a 32 year old. I mean, it's still, it's, yeah, I mean, I could be friends at, with a, I, and I am uh, uh, friends who, who I go climbing with on a fairly regular basis who are in their 50s and 60s. You know, it's just, um, and so they're the same with me. And it's just so funny to me how we, um, you know, hang out with, like you said, with, with the younger generation is so important for your growth because yeah. they help you grow. Oh yeah, but we don't necessarily always see it that way. So, no, yeah, I mean, yeah, Especially I mean, climbing. yeah, our long-term perspectives are so different. And climbing is like this great equalizer. I have a buddy of mine, Mark Pell, I've been talking to again recently. And, you know, he's definitely one of my climbing mentors older. And him and I do not agree at all on a lot of things. But as we agree uh, yeah. together, we we do agree on a, on a much larger amount of things. And it's the same thing. And it's like having those people that you can just kind of like have those conversations with are valuable. And I think that's the biggest portion, you know. And it's like what we talked about, like, before we even get on this, like, just recording a conversation in general and coming back and listening to it is so yeah. so valuable because we're bombarded by so much stuff all the time and i think stuff goes in one ear and out the other but um i want to kind of okay. jump back to a topic that you mentioned briefly and if you don't mind talking about it you know you said you were an orphan and you kind of did you because i only say this because the few kids that i've met that were adopted they were super super appreciative of the people that raised them and i i am well aware I only know kids in the orphan states, the success side of the story. Like they had really great foster parents. They had really great parents that adopted them. They really loved them. And I understand that's not a lot of the case. And I understand that's that. And so I think, you know, did you, I know you said you kind of found the outdoors in 2008, but if you kind of look back on your life, like, did you ever really think that the, you would be where you are today? Uh, no. No, uh, I, I didn't know. I mean, like any kid doesn't know where I would be, but certainly more uncertain of my family. And I, I do want to clarify a little bit because I, I do think it's important. There are folks who were actually, I, I wouldn't necessarily say I was orphaned. Um, I think there were folks who were actually orphaned and who went through the uh, adoption system and uh, social services system. That, and I don't want to downgrade social services. I think that's really important. Um, but I, I do think that the way that often it's it is uh, underfunded and run it leaves kids in the dark and i think those kids go through extremely difficult circumstances that i didn't necessarily have to go through so i was uh, my mom was 15 when she had me and my dad was 18 um, when i was actually born she turned she had just turned 16 and uh, my dad just turned 19 and uh, my dad left the picture um, him and i are actually good friends now um, that was a it, it was a very different time and he's also a completely different open human being um, at this point. And, and my mom passed away when I was 14. And so she was very, she was way too young to have me. My grandpa worked with 
my who would become my adoptive family and they couldn't have kids and so my grandpa not wanting me around um because at, well wanting the social security money that came from me for sure <laughs> so uh but not necessarily wanting to um not necessarily wanting the the you know the person but the money attached to the person yeah uh, he was kind of a terrible human being uh still is he, he he's still alive but that kind of lended to this agreement where they, uh, I, I got basically, I was adopted, quote unquote, but I wasn't, well, it wasn't really adoption. It was a ward of the state was what I became. So I was under legal guardianship of who would become my, who I consider my adoptive family. Oh. Um, that being said, because other caretakers are involved, there is still part of that social security net that is granted to a child who is a ward of the state. And there's, at least to my knowledge in Virginia, there was quite a bit of, uh, of, of money that went along with that. And so I think that was definitely part uh, of the, of the deal. Now I, I love my adoptive, uh, dad. I, I want to just say that outright, but I do think that given the circumstances that when you're born into uh, a poor family, um, and, and poverty comes with all, all kinds of, you know, awful, uh, side effects and coupled with the process of not really having a family and then having both of those families kind of lie to you until you're older, which didn't really bother me. Um, but anyway, yeah, not actually telling you anything until you're like 10 or 11 years old when I actually found out. Um, you know, I didn't know that this person that I was hanging out with was my mom. <laughs> this, this cool, this cool, like who I thought was maybe an aunt or something was actually my mother. Um, oh, who wow. was like my best friend. And yeah, it is just very strange. I do think that um, that is where, yeah, it, it's not it's not necessarily pretty, but at the same time, it did give me an opportunity that I just never would have had. You know, my my adoptive dad, and the reason I say I love him so much is because he wasn't the perfect dad. Um, he didn't know how to be, but through hanging on in a marriage that he definitely probably didn't and didn't want to be a part of, having also my little sister born from the same mom but a different dad. And then adopting her into the family as well. And she has a lot of cognitive issues. Uh, and he still takes care of her, even though he's 76 now. You know, that, that, that guy, I mean, he sacrificed a lot. He was not perfect, but he sacrificed. Like, I really think I owe a lot to him because he accepted positions that he did not want, but nonetheless paid better. I mean, he went from making, you know, probably $30,000 a year to making $80,000 a year, which then allowed us to move out of the neighborhood that we were in where crime was becoming a bit of an issue. And after I was, me and my, my friend, my best friend, Chris, were almost like picked up by just a couple, couple dudes driving by. And my dad came out of the house and like pulled us both into the house. And then, you know, that car drove off. He was like, all right, I think it's time to leave. And we, fortunately, him taking that position gave us the privilege to, to leave that environment. And I think that is ultimately what gave me that privilege. But circling back around, I, I, I do want to make it clear that, yeah, I wasn't, I did not go through the foster care system um, that I, I do think, while it, I think it's beneficial, certainly, um, I do think that like those kids have it much often, much harder. Yeah, but, but I think that's how I was able to to go through that was because I had that one person in my life who was, while no one else was really able to give it, I had a mom who couldn't, and I had an adopted dad who cared and who wanted to 
who wanted to make someone else's life better. Like making my life better makes his life better. Anything that was good for me and good for my little sister was good for him uh, to, to his own expense. I think he wasn't happy a lot of the time with where he was. Um, and having the privilege to have that one person changed everything for me. And I think that is ultimately what helped the dominoes fall. And even though I didn't grow up in this environment, I now have the privilege to be in this environment and to learn from it and to eventually hopefully mentor other people uh, in all of it because wow. of that one person. Yeah. You guys still talk? Oh yeah. 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 For sure. And you know, we have obviously, I mean, you know, he, he is a, you know, a poor Appalachia boy from, um, from Wise County, Virginia, you know, and, and uh, like very much, um, grew up in, in that environment. And, uh, so we have our disagreements certainly politically, but I will say that that person given, he, he overcomes a lot also having an eighth grade education to sit and we have conversations about things. We don't just yell at each other. Um, we disagree, sure. But like, but, but it's pretty amazing how far he's, um, how, how far he's come on that. And so, yeah, we actually have a pretty good relationship and, and I'm surprised because after everything that happened in 2007 that kind of forced me out and into the mountains to come back a few years later and for him and I to be so civil and to really feel like that love for each other is uh, pretty important. That's awesome, man. That's like, I think that's real powerful to have figures and, you know, um, I was talking to another friend of mine about this uh, and like he had expressed to me that like he hadn't had male figures in his life like that. And he was sure. watching the conversation between me and another buddy of mine happen. And he was just like this level of like bromance and romance that you guys share is like, he's like, it's unlike anything he had ever seen before, you know, cause I think you, you can be raw with him that way. And me and Donnell, when we're talking like, you know, like I'm, I, my emotions are very bare. And so I'm like, you know, I turn into yeah. like, you know, I can turn into a total pessimist. And then like five seconds later, I'm a complete optimist about a situation, but I'm willing to be openly vulnerable uh, about that. And I think that's really important. And this kind of also kind of touches on a subject that like, you know, I definitely, I would like to talk to you more about this, but this is definitely a different, different, a different, uh, well, a different episode, but you know, kind of like just men talking sure. to men because you and I really were just introduced via online by Irene, Lady Lockoff. And then, you know, you and I just talked a couple of times and we just kind of hit it off right away. It was like, you know, and I've, you know, yeah. throughout all of this, you know, Black Lives Matter, everything that's been happening in America, I've had the really great privilege of meeting a lot of people. But uh, I, I personally felt like you and I resonated very quickly. And I think we also, being from this in the same profession, we could actually share some of the same humor, uh, which helped out a lot. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, man, and I think that's like something that's really understated. And I think, you know, I'm not saying that, um, you know, and I want to be very clear, you know, whatever your pronouns are, you identify, identify as he, him and his, you know, but like having someone of the same pronouns or of the same, what do you, what you choose to identify of as at least having mm -hmm. someone to have consistent, uncomfortable, hard conversations and conversations that you have to agree. Like it's one thing I think it, people say this all the time and it's like, Oh, we just agree to disagree, but you have to agree to disagree. And you have to also agree to not, to not let your anger be something that holds you back and just agreeing just to disagree. Like you have to push in these conversations and I don't know. I, I just don't think enough people yeah. when we're talking about everything that's going on, 
uh, nowadays, I don't think people dig deep and I don't think people uh, really look at it because, you know, there's a lot of things going on right now between, you know, they talk about white guilt, shame, you know, the fear within the African-American community, you know, the fear and, and also, you know, the feeling of validation and everything. There's like, this is a really complex landscape. And I was very excited that when you and I first started talking, we kind of started talking about this, like right off the bat. And it was something that was important to you. And it was in something that, you know, you definitely really kind of leaned on your upbringing of really like how and why this means so much to you. And it was really, it was really moving to me and I was really appreciative of it. Yeah, man. I'm, and I'm really glad too. And I think, yeah, it's like, I, I, I've been, this was actually a new term to me, but I've heard it referred to as an affinity space where we have these difficult conversations. So for example, you and I as male identifying people just discussing these hard conversations. I mean, like you and I could talk, for example, about, you know, misogyny in the climbing world and, and how, you know, what, like, Hey, what kind of ownership can I take, you know, in that regard? And, and also with, with, you know, obviously like me being white and, and you being black, it's like this, this conversation then also just transitions into like into, into that comp and in, into that one um, pretty, pretty readily. And, and I think being able to have other individuals that we can have these conversations with, where I think it's important to talk with people you disagree with. Absolutely. Like you were saying. And I also think that there's a lot of value in being able to bounce, to bounce thoughts of, of people who are, are even more closely similar to you as well. Um, and I think that, um, like I said, you know, having that, ha having my adoptive dad in my life, and I, I do just call him my dad. I just, I, to clarify, I have two dads and I, like being able to have that conversation with him is even though like we, we look the same, we are from very, like literally separated by two generations and being able to speak to one another in that and have disagreements. And it's easy for us, right? Because we're family. And so mm -hmm. family, it's just generally easier to get along with, even when you vehemently disagree with something. Um, but I do think the difference is, is that, and this is what I commend him on so well, is that he actually says like, okay, I, I see what you're saying. And, but do you understand, and, and do you understand like how I feel this way because of, you know, my upbringing? And I'm like, yeah, I absolutely do. And that empathy uh, that we're able to have um, in that conversation, in that disagreement, I think is extremely important. And that's often what and that's often easy to, to to overlook in the heat of a of a dialogue. Yeah, yeah, no, I would definitely agree, and I just don't think those are happening. I want to take it back. I think they're happening more and more. Oh yeah. I think the thing is, it's just like you know, we can't just accept that they're done, and we've had a couple of them. Like, like this is a generational shift on how we are. We are we're basically switch switching how we choose the level on which. You know, it's fun. the only way I can think of to describe this in my brain is our conversations have always been measured in pounds. And now we are switching our conversations to kilograms, which is te technically heavier. One pound huh. is obviously not as much Such as a one kilo. So and but they're like they're getting heavier. And like we just we just have to understand like this is the new norm. And like we have to push through for this and we have to keep moving mm -hmm. on this basis because like if we revert back in any way, shape or form. Like it's going to be really tragic. And I think we've made a lot of headway yeah. and I think we're still making headway. And I think there is still a lot of room 
for these conversations to happen. So if anybody's listening to this, like, you know, and if you haven't had these kind of conversations, if you haven't had these kind of talks, like there's still a lot of room for this to happen in your own way. And I think that's the big, the beauty of it is like, you just have to dive in. I just, I think this has just been so taboo for so long. Like people just, you know, and I, I'm yeah. speaking to men mainly, you know, like, I just don't think they want to have this conversation, but I think it's ultimately so important that we do have this conversation or these conversations. It's funny because we, it's often painted as, well, everyone, you know, just complains and just wants to talk about politics all the time. And every, as we all know, you know, I mean, and obviously I'm speaking sarcastically here, uh, as we all know, you don't talk about politics, you know, around the family, you don't talk about uh, religion, you don't talk about these things. And, and I've never agreed with that. I'm, maybe that's why I, maybe, that, maybe that's why I have relationship issues in my life sometimes is because I, I, I love what I would consider. I think you, you had said this not that long ago, or you had posted it on your story or something about dialogue versus debate. And I, I love, I, I just, I love it. I'm, I'm addicted to, to having like, I really want to know, okay, well, why do you believe what you believe? And, and, and it's funny because often individuals will point to, well, previous generations, you know, had to go through so much and they didn't talk about this. I'm like, well, okay. So previous generations, for example, were like, you know, dying of the Spanish flu and going to world war one and, and dying in trenches. And, and yeah, things are a little bit more peaceful now. So people don't have it necessarily as hard technology, technology's gotten better, but I will actually, I would argue that some of us do have it, uh, uh very hard. Um, mm-hmm. but, but this is this, so dialogue is the way that we're uncomfortable, um, often at, well, at least so for example, uh, white people are often really uncomfortable right now because we are now having this this conversation, and I don't think that's any less relevant to having it. I mean, so you know, this idea of you know, like just uh, being uncomfortable and being okay with being uncomfortable. Well, now it's conversation. Uh, you know, come on, come on, white America. Like it's time to have this conversation and be okay with it. It's not an indictment of of you as an individual necessarily, but it's uh, it's. It's how we have to unlearn a lot of things. And that's going to be really uncomfortable when you hear a lot of the truth. And while you may not be explicitly um, involved in something, it's, it's implicit in the way that we have had the ability to ignore those, those issues. And that's, it's not comfortable hearing what other people are going through. And that's really what's happening now is that I see a lot of anger because people haven't been listened to. And eventually, if you know, if you just keep saying, oh, agree to disagree, well, eventually if someone's, you know, it's not just a dialogue for some people, you know, and I think that's what it's really hard to hear. It's hard to hear that someone has it harder than you. Yeah. And because we all want to believe that we have gone like, I mean, I've, I, I feel like I've gone through a lot and I do, I, I lean on that a little bit. I, I do. And, and sometimes I use it as an excuse. But at the same time, I, I do want to, and I, I'm trying hard not to stand on like a moral high ground here because obviously there's just no way I'm, I'm perfect here. Mm-hmm. But I do feel that I try to ignore that and I try to say, okay, but it's not my story right now. I'm, I'm hearing someone else's story who does, as far as I can tell, because I believe people when they, when they tell me that I have, I'm inclined to believe people, they have it hard. And now, so now I'm uncomfortable. And Okay, so that discomfort, like, just, yeah, sitting with that discomfort, right? And we had said this earlier uh, on an earlier conversation you and I had. It's like we're climbers; we're supposed to be really good at discomfort, right? Yeah. And uh, so, <laughs> on the whole, people who aren't climbers, yeah, people who aren't climbers, it's it's okay right now to 
yeah, to be uncomfortable. I hope I'm not taking this conversation in a direction. Um, but that's, I, I think that's where your thought was leading me. Yeah. Was, and it's definitely, I, idea. you know, and I def, I'm happy, for, I'm really thankful for you saying that because I think the point is, is like, you know, it, it's a proven fact, a more diverse community, a more ethnically, social, socioeconomic, social, economically, and ethnically diverse community, a more diverse community, period, is a stronger community. And so, you know, all of us getting on board, having these conversations, me understanding your upbringing, you understanding mine, like strategically, we can just work together because, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's this, I don't know, call me overly patriotic, but like, we're all Americans. And I think we all should be looking out for each other. I'm not saying anybody from any other country is not welcome, or I don't appreciate their thought or values, but you're not in my backyard. And, you know, if you come to my backyard and you're here, I will welcome you and love you with open arms, just as anyone else. But when you live in my backyard, it just, it blows my mind that like we as neighbors, you know, figuratively and literally should be able to have these kind of conversations because ultimately yeah. like, like, like tell me what the downside is. Like, really, like, tell me what the downside is. Like the, like it right. might be, yeah, it makes you a little un uncomfortable. It makes you a little weird. You might have to deal with some shame. I might have to deal with some things that I don't really like and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, oh my gosh. It's a very low bar, right? Yeah. But the upside is so high. Like, like, like yeah. when you can't even fathom how good it could be. That means the upside is so high. And I, I really hope our conversation today really encourages people to continue to have these conversations. Because I know like activist fatigue and getting really tired about having these talks can just seem so weird out, worn out. But, you know, sure. the, the reality of the situation is, is, yeah, you, you know, this might be tiring for you, but someone else, this is still the reality. And it's going to be a while before all this yeah. is done. But I think if we all can talk consistently, I think we will all build a deeper, more loving appreciation for each other. Yeah, beautifully put. Because that being being able to appreciate where someone is coming from when they tell you a story, your first reaction should should I well, I'm saying should, but I, I feel that way. You know, I'm just gonna I'm gonna stick with that opinion. I I, I really yeah. feel like your first reaction should to, should be to empathize, right? And and to and out, working at Outward Bound for so many years has taught me that. And you, it, it's it, when someone's telling you their experience, and maybe they're a little angry, and they have a right to be. It really is just. I feel like your job to, to empathize with where that person is coming from, and that's you know to me disagreeing with my with with family, for example, um, on something is to understand that, you know, they're, they're going to push back. And yes, like the, the weight of the conversation is on um, this side that we're talking about. So for, for example, Black Lives Matter, um, like even that statement, Black Lives Matter, is like, have to understand that this is like not an indictment of, mm -hmm. of that person. And they're going to feel, if they do feel attacked, like it, I, they shouldn't, in my opinion, but at the same time, even on that, I still, and this is easy for me to say as a white male, if I was speaking to another white male is like, I'm going to, I'm going to empathize with that person's, with that person's position too. You know, like my adoptive dad, like he really did have a really hard life growing up. Um, he lost his dad early. He was drafted to Vietnam, went to Vietnam. Um, you know, who knows what he saw over there. 
Um, yeah, that and, shit was real. And yeah, and any war, right? But it, but so so it's I still will sit with that and empathize with it. again. Easy for me to say as a white male talking to another white male, but it's yeah, that's that's hard to do. It's 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 really it's it's hard to hear the disagreement and then empathize with disagreement. But but I think starting from that then allows me to just live. It's like okay, I'm I'm going to stand on my ground here. I'm not giving ground, but I'm but I'm going to say okay, like yeah, I, I'm I'm going to recognize what you went through, and now how do we work in that framework to to help you understand that like okay, well then you should empathize even more with this side because of this reason. And, 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 and that's hard to do. I don't think anyone owes. I don't think anyone owes that to anybody who disagrees. And I don't think that that's like somehow me saying that, you know, that's like, for example, the route change, uh, changing route names, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, if someone's if someone's angry, it's not uh, because because of a route name really hurts them. I to me, like if they're, if they're angry, I don't I, I am in no position to tell them how to react to that. Uh, yeah. In an ideal world, though, I mean, yeah, sure, I would, I would say this is how you can approach it, but yeah, that's and that's where it's difficult. So that's why I think, as me as a white man, I, I'm trying really hard to to be in this position where I'm like, all right, y'all, let, let let's handle this a little bit better. Yeah, <laughs> um, to yeah, speaking to I, other, you know, yeah, speaking to my side, so to speak. Yeah, no, um, and I think that's the that's the important thing, and it's like this is just like. <sighs> you know, the current climate of politics and everything, like we've just gotten so used to being like really polar and, you know, it's just, it's sure. one or the other. And I think like you, you know, you nailed it on the head. It's like, yeah, it might be this uncomfortable conversation. Yeah. You might not want to do this, but like getting back to the point of it, it's like, but like how much better are we really going to become, you know, in the end, if we do continue to kind of push down this narrative and it's rough and it's odd. And, you know, I think a lot of people still haven't even seen it. There's a lot of people who live in societies or live in bubbles that are, have yet to be, you know, infiltrated. Now, I don't want to use the word infiltrated, but they have yet, there are a lot of people who still live in community bubbles who have still yet to even see what is going on. And they have the ability to deny, they have the ability to deny it. And they don't even know that they're lying and it's a big deal. And, uh, you know, man, it's, it's wild. It's, it's, it really is wild, but I'm excited and I am, yeah, I, I'm trying not to let my pessimistic side get the best of me, but I am excited uh -huh. and I'm really looking forward to what is going to come out of this. People like you who are moving from the ally category to what I like to call the comrade category, meaning, you know, you don't mind putting your neck out of there a little bit. You don't mind getting a little bloody. You don't mind doing this because, you know, the reality of the situation is like, it's what needs to happen. And the second reality is like, if we don't start doing this now, it's just going to get worse again. Like, like that's the, I think the one thing that people yeah. don't realize, like if we don't do anything, it's going to get a lot worse, way worse than it was before. because you know, powers that be, you know, by their behavior, we can tell they would prefer it to be a particular way. And, you know, I'm just not, in my personal opinion, I'm not going to let the, the Gestapo get away with it. So, but I digress. I really appreciate you. No, no, I really appreciate you lending me comradeship. Um, I don't know if I've necessarily earned that yet from my perspective. Um, while I appreciate it, I, I am still like, I'm, I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm still scared, right? I, I, I still don't necessarily know how, how like i know i'm i'm making attempts um but i'm i'm 
scared of hurting people. You know, so for example, I really want to be reaching out to more black athletes and giving an, an indigenous athlete, really just all marginalized communities and giving my platform a voice to them. But I'm often scared to reach out to them. So I do, I appreciate that. I also sometimes feel that like my, my, my fear is uh, sometimes at times lending me, um, I don't know, it seems like a high bar to, for me to achieve. And, and I hope I'm going to achieve that. But I'll, yeah, I do want to lift those voices up. But you're already doing the first step though. And that's like the big thing. Like most people I think just aren't even really thinking about it. You know, the, it crosses yeah. in their mind and then it moves on to whatever else, you know. Uh, but you have like let the stop sit. You have thought about it. You allow it to kind of work in the echo chamber. And then you are having the conversations with yourself to move yourself forward, you know. And I think that's like a big thing. Like I don't don't take away from yourself. Like that's a huge thing. Like most people just let the echo like they they have a couple little bounce arounds in the echo chamber in their brain. And then they just let it go away. Certainly. And that's like what we see most of the time because people want to get on with their lives. Like I understand that. Totally get it. Yeah. They want yeah. to get on with their lives. You know, so do we. So, you know, and uh, yeah, it's very important to me. Um, I want to, I, I want to continue this conversation and I definitely think that you and I actually have a few other talks that I think would be very, very, very relevant, but I do want to wrap this up here. Oh, totally. Yeah. So where can people That's find true. you online and get in touch with you? The easiest way is, um, on my Instagram, uh, it's at the Cody Bradford. I promise it was not meant to be that, uh, intentional. It was, it started out uh, that, um, pretentious. It started as a joke. Um, I didn't realize my Instagram account was somehow a uh, crew people, uh, but it's at the Cody Bradford. And uh, I also have a website, codybradford.com. Uh, oh, nice. I admittedly don't upkeep it uh, because at the moment, because I'm not working. Um, but as I start to move into the fall and I'm kind of forced back into work here for that American machine, um, I will be updating, uh, putting online material on there for people to access for free. Um, videos of tutorials and whatnot. And I'll also have an updated schedule um, on there. So um, that's where folks can find me. And please uh, shoot me an email or a DM anytime. 